All right, this is part four of the Hollow audiobook, read, written, and recorded by yours truly, Paul Yoder. Um, yeah, if you haven't yet, um, I know there are quite a few people listening to this by just the numbers. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from you guys, see what you thought, see what you're thinking. I would be completely and dumbfoundingly uh, remiss to neglect uh, the Patreon uh, supporters who have been able to support me in this. Um, the podcast has cost me more than it has gained me, but um, I'm able to keep it afloat because of you guys. Um, if you enjoy this, one way you could really help is just go over to iTunes or your podcasting caster of choice and just give it a give it a good rating. Give it a listen. Um, give it a share for sure. I, I really think that this is, I don't know, I think it's a cool little project. And I think that people would really love it if you have a, a friend who is interested in writing, reading, or whatever. Send this over to him. It's easy. It's free. It's fun. And here's what I'd say to them if you're trying to, you know, share the podcast. Just put it up there. Say, hey. Listen, this uh, this podcast here, it's trying to do something that is sorely lacking from the writing and reading community, and that is something that I call book sermons. Now, what do I mean by this? This is a acknowledgement that uh, writing and reading is a somewhat amorphous and artistic form that has been treated too long like a program, which instead, in my humble opinion, should be treated more like a devotional, a uh, sort of Benedictine practice that, while artistic and free, is also acknowledging certain truths that lie at the bottom of that freedom. If you're curious about this, I would really recommend listening to the podcast. If your experience with writing is the simplistic uh, wrote memorization of a kind of Sunday school version of writing or reading. That's good, um, but it's also not the beginning and ending of this whole field of art that uh, is awaiting you. So please give it a listen. And if you like this book and you want to know how I banged it out in a month and why I'm giving it away for free and all of these things, uh, check out Authors Dozen. It's a fun little podcast. All right, on with the show. Chapter 29 The wolf was up and running at the word go. Turner was suddenly glad that he'd worn his seatbelt. The wolf could outrun a horse in a short race. Turner had been prepared for that. He had not been prepared for the speed at which they would reach that speed. Turner felt a sudden kinship with rockets. The wolf's explosive acceleration ripped the saddle from Turner's grip. He barely had time to reassert his grasp before the wolf reached the Switch family's soot-blackened outer wall. Turner was sure that the wolf meant to plow through the bricks, and he prepared to die in the silliest way possible. They will only need to dig me a flat grave, Turner thought as he closed his eyes. My coffin will be a small bucket. Somehow they kept moving onward. Turner opened his eyes just in time to see that, rather than plowing through the wall or leaping over it, Puppet simply arched his back and legs. The result was a wave-like motion with its peak traveling down Pup's spine. 
Turner had seen cats make this sort of leap before, but never in such a frenzied rush. The only thing that separated Pup's loping run from a bucking bronco was Turner's spring saddle. He almost floated midair as they tore through the streets. He kept his surroundings despite the speed. The downhill grade was like a freefall. Paws glided, stamped and glided. Turner surrendered any idea of controlling this animal. The animal was going to go where it pleased, and Turner would go with it. Turner was exhausted by the time the wolf slowed. Turner felt as though he'd run several miles with the wolf on his back, rather than the other way around. His thighs were sore from squatting. His arms were beaten to the bone by the sudden turns and decelerations. His wounded shoulder ached. He realized then that the bandit's wolf had been taking things easy. That wolf had been larger and stronger. Turner should know, having felt its bite. They were outside the city before nightfall. The wolf was finally taking Turner's direction, but they were not headed south. Instead, the wolf sniffed every so often at the ground, as though following a trail. Turner shivered. As they moved further and further from the west coast, the air grew colder and drier. When the last light slipped over the horizon, they were gaining the top of the local hill range, where the clouds met the soil. Then he saw it. Three pup tents laid out in a grass valley. Pup crouched down in the long grass and settled in. Turner stared down into the dale ahead. It was flanked by a triangle of hills. In this depression, the campfire was hidden from the world, and the world hidden from the campfire. Turner stepped down off the wolf. There were two wolves below, the white and the black. There were two horses and three pup tents. The nobleman and the peasant were here, but what of the other one? He knelt down on his quivering knees, oddly faint from the journey. The white one, Turner whispered. Mean bitch, called Lucy. Dichromatic eyes. Diamarcus would make us stay inside whenever she went hunting. Turner looked to Pup. Lucy was in the arena with you, wasn't she? The gray wolf looked at Turner, then looked down at the camp. Pup knew the situation better than Turner in some ways. He knew things he could not communicate through words, but only through action. That said, Turner suspected the white rider to be the noble from the cave, the catalyst pretender who had helped Diamarcus, the man who had tried to frame and kill Jack inside of all Ulgrad. Turner retrieved his repeater rifle. He checked the lightweight gun all over to make sure it was ready. He chambered around. The lever action was easy, but Turner couldn't risk even that much noise in a valley of wolves. In and out, he said. An ambush and escape. He readied himself to climb back on Pup. The wolf shied away. It looked at Turner again, its yellow eyes green in the night. Turner looked down at the camp and thought of their chances. One rookie wolf rider against four men and two wolves. Turner remembered the move he'd seen in the lupine circuit when the two yellow wolves had moved to outflank Pup. The next ten minutes felt like ten hours. In the dark, Turner had to scramble along the ridge on hands and knees. The camp was always to his left. The wolves below slept. Pup watched, waiting, until Turner was on the opposite lip of the dale. Then, all at once, Pup sprinted. Turner looked down. The two wolves below could eat him alive. One had already tried. But Pup was a wolf, too, and wolves did not hunt alone. Turner rose to his feet, gripped his rifle by the barrel, and charged. Gravity carried Turner down the hill. He swept through the weeds and grasses over bushes and rocks until he was nearly at the bottom. 
He heard a yelp of pain. He heard yapping and the snap of teeth. From the huge animals, even a whimper sounded menacing. Soon came the snarls and growls. If Turner could have helped it, he might have turned and run. Pup rose up the valley like a gray streak. The two wolves followed after. There were cries from the tents, and Turner dove to the ground. He watched the space between shifting grasses as two figures burst from their tent and made for their horses. Stay with her, Blackburn. The voice was that of Diamarcus. Turner was surprised to find the man so far from comfort and backup. Matches. The other rider was a peasant bandit. If he was after the wolves, they would soon return from Pup's diversion. Stay with her, Blackburn. The rider of the white wolf was Cole Blackburn, the same who had tried goading Jack into a duel. He was here. And if Diamarcus was here, there was only one person who he could mean by her. Turner watched. He could not afford patience or timidity. Fear pushed him to his feet, and he crept toward the tents. He made a wide circle toward the leftmost tent. The stars were out tonight. Without moon or clouds, Turner had to rely on faint, shifting shadows. He carefully rounded one tent, keeping his carbine fixed on the front entrance. The opening flapped in the chill wind, empty. Turner looked to the other tents. He could hear the sounds of far-off gunfire and hoofbeats. Turner spotted what looked at first like a tent stake, jutting out from the next tent's flap. He trained his gun on the shape. The shape moved to one side. Turner could not explain it, but he knew that the shape was a gun, and he knew by the way it moved exactly where in space the gunman was crouching. Turner followed the barrel back to the tent. His finger itched toward the trigger. Turner crouched and laid his carbine on the grass. A gunshot would bring back the others, and he couldn't risk missing. Still crouched, he pulled the hunting knife from the strap on his thigh. Turner closed his eyes, took a breath, and charged like a bull. He stepped, flew, stepped again. He didn't know if the man named Blackbird ever heard him coming. If he did, he heard too late. Turner threw his weight into the side of the tent, tearing down its side in a dagger-led tackle. Turner wrapped one arm around the man and pushed his knife into the tent cloth. Once, twice, a dozen times, Turner felt the strain of the body struggle. His wounded shoulder ached. He wouldn't let go, wouldn't stop plunging the knife home. By the time Turner was done, he lay panting atop a bloody, still canvas. The Ephractos named Blackburn died without a sound. Turner looked up. Perhaps he'd been too quiet. He took a deep breath, collected himself, and stood. Faye, he hissed. Faye, it's Turner. He waited, then hissed again. Faye. Faye. I won't fall for that, Faye huffed. I'm smarter than you think, Cole. I don't know about that, Turner said. He walked toward the sound of her voice. He came upon her in a tent. She was tied up in three different ways and had already loosened two of the knots. She gave Turner a strange look. What are you doing out here? Not sure if I know, Faye scoffed. That fellow's name was Cole Blackburn, Faye said. You've just killed your first Ephractos. Not my first, actually. Damnation, Faye hissed. Was that a third wolf? Turner cut loose her last bond. Yes, he whispered. It's ours. You have a wolf? The older girl grinned. And here I thought you were being brave. Her grin had something of sorrow about it. Turner understood. The two had lost one another, and both wondered what the other had become in the short time that had passed. I'm 
Sorry, Turner said. I led us to that camp. That was a mistake, Faye granted. But now you've let us out. Chapter 30 So, Faye said, you didn't mean to save me. Well, I wanted to. But it wasn't you who found me? The wolf showed me where to go. It couldn't quite tell me why. Turner and Faye had taken the horses. Even so, it was slow going in the dark, especially following Faye's directions. Her compass led them back toward the river. They followed it upstream. The horses moved slow through the shallow current, but it would confuse the wolves' sense of smell. Turner discovered things about his own story as he related it to Faye. Though he did not stoop to lying, there were parts of the tale to be left unsaid. The story must be shorter than its subject, certainly, and Faye did not need to know the color of every hat and cobblestone. He did not need to speak of the laughing gas and how he had cried. Turner's guilt at not stopping his father's death remained unspoken. So, Faye said, you just killed Cole and avenged your father's death. No, I stabbed a man in the dark. Turner looked down at his clothes. He could not see the blood in the dark, but he could feel its drying crust. That man was the knife that killed Jack. A knife needs a hand, an arm, a body, a man. I could work my way up that body of evil, but I don't think I'd ever cut off his head. Faye rode on in silence. The horse's hooves made a bubbling plop every time they plunged into the water. They were climbing higher into the hills, where everything was cold and wet. What if you could? Faye asked. Turner frowned. Could what? What if you could cut the head off of evil? She spat off the side of her horse. Faye did not spit. Turner had never seen her this dirty and unkempt, even in their initial escape. Well, I don't think evil's got a head. You're right. It's got heads. Many. She met Turner's eye, and the night made her eyes black and deep. The Hollow Fortress is, according to the book of the same name, capable of ruling the world. The hearthfall, the pain-making petricide gas. Turner frowned. What did Justice want with serfs, then? I don't know. Maybe he needs help. So, Turner frowned, we could just use nitrous oxide to get there. Good luck finding a hidden fortress when you're crazy. Faye shook her head. I'm being unfair. I overheard. Marcus knows how to get to the Hollow Fortress. You and I do, too. We just have to want to go, like your mother did. And that's the problem. Turner looked up at the sky. The clouds were dark. It doesn't sound like a problem. We're still tied to this world, Turner. I don't have anything left. I thought you said you had a wolf. Turner kept his gaze on the sky. I'm ready to go. He spoke half to Faye, half to whatever forces controlled the sky hearths. The wolf would be fine without me. But you care about it. You wouldn't want to lose it. It's my father's, well, no, but... We've got to find him, then. Because you and I can't get to the Hollow Fortress unless the wolf wants to go with us. A chill ran down Turner's neck. Okay, yeah, he'd be useful, anyway. He looked down at Faye. If that's what's keeping me, what's keeping you? Faye rubbed her eyes. You know, sometimes I can't tell if you're just pretending to be oblivious.
Turner's breath caught in his throat. After a few minutes of silence, he cleared it. I, I don't like to, to presume what people think. Faye met his eyes. You and I have saved each other's lives several times. Her smile was teasing, as usual, but also kind. I think it's safe to presume we're friends. Turner was glad Faye could not see him blush. He wasn't sure why, but he found Faye's kindness more disarming than her ire. He looked away and shrugged. I think that's probably true. He shook his head. Sorry, that's annoying. Yeah, it's completely true. You've killed two. That's hard. It gets easier, I think. As a friend, Turner, don't start doing that tough boy act like stabbing somebody doesn't haunt you. Turner grinned. No, I think I'll do what you do. Yeah? I'll be so tough that I pretend I'm not tough, even though I am. Faye laughed. So that's all I'm saying, Faye replied. She looked ahead to a bend in the stream. I wouldn't want to lose you. I don't think it's embarrassing to presume that. Turner laughed. What? Faye asked. What did I say? It's more what she didn't say. You're presuming. Tell me about the past few days, and I won't have to. Shouldn't we focus on finding your wolf? Turner rode to the lip of the riverbank. It had been a long night, and he still hadn't heard much from Faye. If he forced her to speak now, he would only get half-truths and obfuscation. Turner looked down into the valley ahead. He grinned. I told you, the wolf is fine without me. At Turner's voice, Pup looked up. The creature's hair was tangled and dirty. Turner could see no wounds. A brisk trot up toward Turner confirmed Pup's health, perhaps too much for the horse's liking. Turner's horse whinnied in fright at the unfamiliar wolf moving its way. Turner pulled up its reins. This only caused the horse to spin and rear up. Turner shouted in panic as he fell backwards out of his saddle and onto the long grass. Turner winced and groaned as the wolf closed in. Pup, he said. You're lucky I've got a strong ass. Faye nodded toward the retreating horse. Your ass is making a beeline towards Ulgrad. Sod it, Turner muttered. It's got my carbine. The words caught in Turner's throat. Faye? I could have sworn that none of these clouds were skyhards a moment ago. Faye looked up, keeping her own horse in check. Yeah, I, I think this is it. The clouds were bright enough to cast shadows. Turner could finally see just how dirty and bruised Faye had been all this time. Turner looked from Faye to Pup. The wolf's yellow eyes flashed in the cloud light. Turner stood, ignoring the pain in his backside, and began to mount his father's wolf. When we get to where we're going, he told Faye, you're going to tell me what's been happening. You presume I know? Turner let go of his saddle. He raised his arms to either side, as though basking in rainfall. The sky was growing brighter by the second, but Turner kept his eyes open, willing himself into the sky. Take us, he shouted. I've got nothing here. The wolf slowed then stopped. It looked back at Turner, then looked up at the bright sky hearths. The sustained current crackled, and Turner felt his hair stand on end. Take me where you took my mother. Take me to Sophia, to a hollow fortress. There came silence. It was a silence like Turner had never felt before. It was a sharp, active silence, the kind one knew only after a deafening roar. 
The wolf howled at the sky but made no sound. Turner joined his voice to that of the wolf. Though we could hear not a word, Turner screamed for the storm to end this life and begin another, a life of service. Chapter 31 Turner woke up cold. He blinked the sleep from his eyes and tried to focus on the nearest object, a tiny cloud of sky hearth, roughly two body lengths overhead. He thought for a kind moment that he had woken from some terrible and vivid dream. Then came another thought. Perhaps this was the dream. He had a dim sense of lying with his back against a smooth stone. Nothing lay between his skin and the rock. He frowned. Running his hand down his leg, he gasped. His shock wasn't due to his lack of clothing, but rather the fact that he was naked in this strange, bright cave, and had no idea how he'd come to either state. There might have been a time when Turner could have handled this unfamiliar situation with calm, but Turner felt as he had under the nitrous oxide in the Torah of Angobar. He felt a dreamlike panic. He turned over. Instinctively, he covered his privates. He felt something strange. His other hand went to his chest, his face, and eventually his head. He'd been shaved smooth as a worm. His hair was now the length of a fingernail. He thought about crying for help, but then thought better of it. He didn't know who was listening. His eyes darted around the room and saw nothing but stone and clouds. Why were these sky hearths so low? The clouds and their electricity provided the room with a ghostly, shifting light. Turner looked in the other direction. Again, there was nothing but stone. Was he damned? Was this some fate worse than fire? Where were Faye and Pup? He looked down past his feet. There was one side of this oblong cave that was not stone. The clouds stretched down over a ten-foot square of wall. Turner climbed to one knee with one hand still around his crotch. He stared into the bright gray square. Hello? he whispered. There was no reply. He looked around the room again. There was no other way in or out of the stone oval. The entrance, or exit, was somewhere within these clouds. Turner rose to his feet. He could feel the static of the sustained current rippling down his body, though he knew the sky hearths did not kill, and he could not help but be afraid. He crept toward the square of light and peered into it for a moment longer. He could see nothing beyond it, yet beyond it he must go. He extended a hand toward the cloud. A cold vibration ran through his fingertips. He pushed forward. Every muscle in his arm began to twitch at once with sharp pain, and Turner knew that he could not go through this bright cloud if he tried. Turner filled his lungs and held his breath and pressed forward. Chapter 31 Turner stumbled onto a round platform. The stone beneath his toes was gray as granite, but as smooth as marble. The edges of the round platform rose like a smooth hill to form triangular, soft-toothed battlements. Turner suddenly felt as though he were in the jaws of a giant lamprey and felt all the more his nakedness. He was not alone. A man stood at the edge of the tower, peering out through the crenel beneath the triangular merlins. "'I'm sorry for your clothes,' said the figure. His voice was calm, as though this sort of thing happened to him every day. They were markers of an old world. The figure glanced back. He wore the two large hooded robes of a divine priest. Only his eyes were visible between his priestly mask and veil. He was definitely a man, 
and probably middle-aged, based on his voice. The eyes turned away again, peering into the distance. There are new clothes in the center of the tower. You may put them on. Turner nodded. He went to the tower's center, where he found pants and a thick shirt. He glanced around. Only thin air surrounded the tower so far as Turner could see. Looking back, Turner expected to see the cloud door in the cave. There was nothing. The platform was a perfect, smooth circle, with no discernible entrances or exits. Your hair, the figure said. It is like your clothes, a marker, a difference maker. I'm told that you like your hair long, but that is because you think that long hair makes you something other than a peasant. Did my mother tell you that? Turner asked. The figure's arm rose, and a gloved hand emerged from his large sleeve, pointing. Turner followed the gesture. He crept toward the battlements. He had to hold on to one of the wolf-toothed merlins in order to look down. His head swam at what he saw. The tower sat atop a great sprawling fortress, which sat atop a great mountain, which sat upon sky hearths. No, Turner thought. At second glance, the fortress and the tower and the mountain were all part of the same unbroken thing. The mountain only led down to the bright skyhearth clouds beyond which there must be the same sort of earth found everywhere else. It has no brick, it has no stone or mortar. Its foundation is of the same block as its tallest parapet, carved like an anthill from the earth itself. Is this... It is no dream, no afterlife. Is this the Hollow Fortress? Yes, said the man. Then it belongs to Justice. Turner looked up. He approached the hooded figure. Justice, is that your name? The hood turned. The man stretched out his hand toward Turner. Turner's whole body shook. He knelt down. The pain was indescribable. He wanted to die. He wanted to escape off the side of this tower and dash his skull on the mountain. Yet the pain kept him paralyzed. He could think of nothing but pain. He could think of nothing, nothing but pain, and how to end it. Do not approach, said the man. He pulled back his hand. Turner gasped back to life. He finally had room for thought. Petricide. Turner now understood why no one ventured into the southern hemisphere. No word could capture the touch of this gas. No mind could resist it. There could be no greater pain than this. Justice is not a name, said the robed figure. Justice is justice. Turner stared at the man. The man stared off into the clouds below. Turner took a deep, slow breath. May I call you justice? You may call justice justice. Turner could see only two options before him. This justice character was either a divine incarnate in which case his manner was justified, or a man drunk on power, in which case his manner was something near insane. Turner could do nothing to the man in either case. Justice, Turner said. Why have you brought us here? The written divine is a lie. Ul and Luke were both magicians. They both helped build the first city of Uluk. They began to conquer all of mankind using steel and magic, blood, and terror, and beasts. Turner looked on. The robed figure did not gesture or move, nor did he even seem to breathe. Turner did not know if justice spoke true, but he was speaking heresy. 
Turner could do nothing but listen. They conquered an entire continent before Luke realized the truth, realized how they were not only conquering men, but the very beasts they rode. Justice shook his head. Nature does not submit. It is either domesticated or destroyed. Luke realized that man would spread out to conquer all the world, destroying its wondrous chaos, unless man's progress was halted. By conquering, man would be conquered. By destroying life, man would sow the seeds of its own downfall. Justice crouched down, exposing a hair's breadth of skin on his ankle. It was like no skin Turner had ever seen, red with pale streaks, as though his whole body was wrapped in one enormous scar. Justice pushed his hand through the air, as though it were thick like water. Luke created an invisible gas that caused immense pain to human beings. On other creatures, it had no effect. He began to feed this gas into the earth from a fortress he hollowed out of a volcano. Soon the gas covered half the earth. There, of his own volition, Luke halted its flow. Let nature have its borders, Luke said to his brother. May the borders of man suffice. But Ul refused his confines. He had the man's spirit, the spirit that is never satisfied to rest. He invaded the south, sure that his brother would not let him die. On the holy hill of sacred dawn, Ul did die. But Luke, too, had man's spirit. He hated himself for killing Ul. There, alone, in his castle where no man could tread, Luke threw himself off this very tower. I found his bones broken, markers of an old world. How did you come here? Turner asked. I sought the very gift that drove the others back. The man's voice was suddenly ancient and weary. I sought pain. I found instead a means to heal. Turner stood, keeping well clear of justice. What means? The reason you and your mother and all the rest are here is because you need a shelter in the coming storm. When the old world is gone and the new humanity rides forth, you will be at its head. The slave wolf rider, the humble knight, the vanguard of the conquest of the world. Chapter 33 Turner departed. He'd wanted to leave to see his mother, and the sky hearths had taken him away. Strangely, the porter left him in an empty room. His bare feet could detect no pebbles, no cracks, no spot of dust on this apparently ancient floor. Turner looked back. There was a portal behind him. He pressed his hands against it. It would not let him through. He could see no method of opening the portal from this direction, nor could he imagine getting to the top of the tower without Justice's permission. He wondered if this was the room with petricide. Turner collapsed. He wondered, for a moment, if he'd been again exposed to the gas. However, the pain he now felt could be described and comprehended. It was the mere memory of pain, the mere thought of its presence. It was the second worst pain that Turner had ever felt, and it was brought on by nothing more than his own thought. Stop, he thought. No one is trying to hurt you. Not again, not yet. 
he took in his surroundings. He was inside of a smooth domed cavern, larger than he had ever seen. The mere sound of his footsteps were still echoing around its incalculable breadth. The only light shone from the portals and the clouds hovering at the top of the dome. Turner did not know if justice spoke true of Luke. That was beside the point. Turner could no longer doubt that this place had been built by magic, though he hadn't believed in magic until this day. The portal is closed, said a faraway, echoing voice. Turner scanned the room. There were six large square portals, seven, if Turner counted the one behind him, spread equidistant from one another around the bottom of the dome. He found it impossible to locate the source of the voice. It's not him, said the voice. Turner looked around. His eyes grew. Two figures stood in a hallway to his left, both dressed in the plain clothes he now wore. They shared Turner's short hair as well, but they were undoubtedly both female. Turner's bare feet slapped across the smooth stone floor. He was running toward them before he even realized why. The distance was longer than expected. By the time he was halfway to them, more figures began to appear. Every man, woman, and child among the small party was dressed in the same threadbare clothes. Mom, he said. Faye! Sophia finally recognized her son. She ran to meet him, and they slowed just in time to catch one another in a long embrace. I'm sorry, Sophia said. I only came because they said you would be here. Ow. What? His shoulder, Faye said. She moved toward them, though, more slowly. Turner frowned at her. Sod, Faye. Don't worry, she grinned. We're safe now. Turner let go of his mother and moved toward her, mouth agape. Turner had expected to see bruises around Faye's sprayed ankle. What he had not considered, and what had been hidden by the dark during their night escape, were the signs of torture. Beatings, mostly, based on the skin visible around her shins and wrists. There were few places where her skin was not wilted and discolored. Her face was untouched. Questions raced through Turner's mind. He was too afraid to ask any of them. No, no, and no, Faye said. They wanted information. I gave it to them before they did anything I couldn't take. Turner's head swam. He let himself down onto one knee more easily this time. The memory of pain, Turner thought. That's all it is. Yet, he was crying. I'm sorry. He was whimpering, and the thought of showing weakness made him cry all the harder. I didn't... Arms wrapped around him. Faye's, Sophia's, and soon many more. What any of them were doing here was a mystery, until Turner heard the deep, familiar huff of his father's wolf pup. Chapter 34 Turner did not recognize the one-eyed man's language, but his tone was unmistakable. His translator coughed and translated into Uluk. <clears throat> the uh, wolf belongs to it? Turner felt the weight of thirteen strange eyes. He sat with all the others in a strange hall the others had taken to calling the storehouse. It was the room with tables and fireplaces. Few other places in this cavernous fortress were habitable. Six representatives had gathered to hear about the newcomers, one from each of the other villages that had been brought to the hollow fortress. A translator sat beside the one-eyed Tora Ivango, the only representative who did not speak or understand Uluk. The others were all from Kirish, though none could explain why. 
The huge man with the eye patch was one of the Torah Evango Fid. Turner had always guessed Fid to be a rude word, but these exiled to the Diamond Islands of Torah Evang seemed to embrace the term. The man with the eye patch spoke with emotional and dismissive gestures. Turner was oddly grateful. He'd had a difficult time reading the emotions of the other representatives, and he was glad that at least one of them made their hostility transparent. An elderly woman leaned forward to speak. Even if the boy were powerful, it would mean nothing next to the power of justice. The one-eyed Torah of Van Gogh began to speak again. The translator sighed before interpreting. <sighs> the Torah of Van Gogh outsiders have not been impressed by the Kirash so far. The outsiders are uh, poor and well sought at their slaves on the island diamond mines. They've experienced pain you can't imagine. They're tough, so... They wonder why they shouldn't just take the wolf and make everybody else do as they please. Wolves aren't taken, Turner said. He tried to speak as though he'd ridden wolves more than three times. The wolf is loyal. What it thinks about me is more important than what the outsiders think about me. The one-eyed Torah Vango laughed. He spoke in a strained, broken uluk. Feed have something better against wolf. Feed have... Then it... What does that mean, mine... There was a cry of joy from the other end of the storeroom. Turner looked up. He watched, astonished, as a sky hearth began to form atop an empty table. The electricity hung like a thick fog, then dissipated. It left behind a dozen huge bowls of rice and beans, along with baskets of fruit and pitchers of milk. The others grinned at Turner's reaction. Many of the villagers had been in this fortress for months. When asked how they'd fed themselves... They only laughed. If they'd answered honestly prior to this example, Turner supposed he would have been the one laughing at them. "'What is this?' shouted a child at the other end of the storehouse. Turner looked toward the voice. A fresh deer carcass now sat in the large trough near the main doors. Turner looked back toward the others. "'Is that normal?' "'No,' said the translator. He'd spoken of his own accord this time. He usually gives us prepared meals. Rich ones, too. I'd better bring it to Pup. Turner looked around the circle. You've heard everything I know. I don't need a whole council to tell me what I don't. The representatives nodded, some more enthusiastically than others. Turner nodded to his mother and Fay. The three made their way toward the deer. They spoke to one another in a voice too quiet to be heard and too loud to be suspicious. Quite the welcome, Turner said. Sophia nodded. They were gently with Faye. Understandable. Lucky me, Faye said. Turner once again marveled at how well Faye hit her pain. You should have given us up sooner, he said for the twentieth time. You shouldn't have gotten bit by a wolf, Faye said. Then you would have been there yourself. Sophia hushed her. It's all luck, children, and a lack of it. I'm not a... Faye began, then bit her tongue. The reason they kept going is that I couldn't tell them anything that they didn't already know. I told them that there were two requirements to get here. The fortress had to want you, and you had to want the fortress. But we don't know why the fortress wanted us, Turner said. We still don't. Faye, Sophia began. She was of a height with Faye and Turner, but her maturity gave her stature. Would you trust me alone with my son for a moment? Faye flinched, then shrugged. You don't need to ask me. Her shorter haircut let Turner see more of her face. She turned away before Turner could be sure, but he 
thought he saw her blush. She took a seat at a table near the doors. Turner and his mother reached the deer carcass. They found a sheet used to cover hay, shook it clean, and piled the body on top before dragging it to the doors. When opened, mountain air swept through the opening like an avalanche. I don't remember you two being friends, Sophia said. Well, we are. Turner looked backwards to see if Faye were still there where she'd left him. The table at which she'd sat was empty. Strange, Turner thought. Where did she get to? Hmm. Sophia had a knowing tone. They closed the doors behind them. Turner thought about arguing with his mother's presumed assumption, but figured it would do more harm than good. The only way to get his mother off the subject was to say something cruel, and he was unwilling to do so. She had shown no emotion when told of Jack's witch's death. That was troubling. The air below the mountain was thick and gray. Petricide was invisible. Apparently, the process for making it was not. Those clouds have been getting thicker, Sophia noted. She turned, startled, when she heard pups breathing echoing across the stone yard. The wolf advanced with tapping claws. Turner moved to welcome the wolf, but Sophia kept her distance from Pup and his meal. Do you think the dog is cold? Sophia looked down at the slim moccasins they wore. There was little moisture this high up, but the villagers were still worried about their skin fastening itself to the cold stone. Turner patted Pup's rough fur and led him to the carcass. He had expected the wolf to eat with abandon, but Pup only ate begrudgingly. It's less that he's cold and more that he's bored, I think. What happens when he gets too bored? He's a wolf, not a dog. Turner looked up at the high tower where Justice stayed. Pup thinks of me as one of his pack. If anything happens, he'll probably eat you first. His mother didn't like me either. Sophia moved toward Turner, keeping a watchful eye on the wolf. Pup made a show of noticing her, as if to warn her off. He doesn't trust me yet. Why would he? Sophia sighed. I'm sorry, Turner, for everything. It was all too complicated. Not really. Turner's eyelids felt suddenly heavy. You hid my father from me, and me from my father, and neither of us wanted to be hidden. Your pup lifted his eyes and bared his bloody jaws. Sophia shied back. When the wolf went back to eating, Sophia dared to look back at her son. Is this what power does to you? So what if it does, Turner said. He kept his voice low and level, trusting in the wolf's presence. Jack told his wife, mother, knowing that I existed would have done him no harm. I didn't know that she knew. And why is that? because you and Jack never spoke. Because he thought it would hurt me to know that I damaged his marriage. All these secrets and hiding, the wolf growled again. Its voice gurgled with blood. Sophia shied back for a moment, then straightened again. Well, she asked, if you're gonna have him eat me, let's have it done. She offered her hands, wrists up, shaking like leaves in wind. Will an arm or a leg suffice? Or must I die, Turner, so that you can have all you want from me? The wolf had stopped eating. Turner felt the sting of cold tears. Not knowing him was the worst thing that ever happened to me. I'm sorry, Sophia was almost shouting now, not caring who heard. What else can I do, Turner, but say that I'm sorry? Say that I thought 
I had good reason, good intentions. Turner moved forward, stepping over the carcass. Turner screamed back, I know, I know you tried. You failed. Yes, yes. Sophia's eyes were wide. She was looking past Turner, not at him. So what do I do? You shut up and let me be angry. Turner felt hot breath on his back, thick with death. He turned and screamed at the wolf. There were no words in Turner's cry. He was wild and beyond words. The wolf named Pup did not know words. His response was neither to speak nor huff nor bark. The wolf merely narrowed its eyelids and bunched up its muzzle. It was a look of disdain. Pup leaned down and gripped a hunk of deer between his fangs. He lifted the meat as if it were nothing but a toy, and, turning, began to trot back to where he'd come from. Turner wished that Pup had only literally torn out his heart. Turner wanted to run, to hit something. He wanted to be angry, but there was nobody worth his anger. He turned toward the massive tower. You listening, old man? He began to stalk forward. Bring me up! I want to see you! We're not your toys, or your animals, so tell me what you're doing with us. Bring me up. By the time Turner finished screaming, he was already gone. Chapter 35 Turner was not alone. He had not expected to be alone at the top of Justice's tower, but he had expected to be alone with Justice. There was another, what looked at first like a young girl, bundled up in rags, crouched at the edge of the tower and staring into the distance. She glanced over at Turner, then turned away. Fay, Turner breathed. Faces, Justice said. Isn't that what you called her? Behind her back? Turner rounded on Justice. The man was staring him dead in the eyes. Everything in Turner wanted to lash out at this creature, but the memory of Petricide kept him still. I didn't know her, Turner said. He tried to keep his voice subdued. You did. Justice's eyes were dark and deep. His blinks were rapid, regular. I didn't understand, Turner said. He was speaking more to Faye than to Justice. Faye, I'm sorry. Justice waved off Turner's objection. She was confused, thought herself nobler than the rest of you. It's the same with all of you. Give you one shred of power, one drop of honored blood or unearned wealth, and... Justice waved toward himself. But look at me, Turner, and know that you're nothing. Why am I nothing? Turner asked. Because you must be, for the task ahead. You must be broken down. By pain? Turner could not keep the hate from his voice. There's only so much I can take before I'm of no use to you. Justice lifted his gloved hand. He extended a finger toward Fay. It needn't be yours. Justice didn't care if Justice was bluffing. He raised a hand. No, Justice. Justice turned his hand toward Turner. Turner was wrong. There was no limit to the pain his body experienced. The pain seemed to rise each moment into eternity, and Turner would do anything to escape. If only Turner could move his tongue, he would have told Justice to hurt anyone besides Turner, even Faye, even Sophia. As Turner lay paralyzed on the ground, Justice withdrew his hand. Even as the pain subsided, Turner wanted nothing but to rest. He closed his eyes. He listened to Justice. Justice, Justice said. I had another name once. 
one I can clearly remember. Chipper and short, the name. And it'd be heard, birdsong trilling as he went from farm to farm. Rare that name and rare the man. A slave that was a priest. And how the masters loved to sell him to one another. For the rare man would tell the slaves of his assurance that slaves were the luckiest of all men. He was sure of the winds, sure as a kite, sure of the reward for service. Divine. Oh, how they, like he, longed to hear that they labored not in vain, but towards some definite thing. Like he, they longed for their life to have some gain that was above pain and the lack of pain. Like he, they longed for the notion that this unkind life was an exchange for a life much kinder. Turner had heard preaching, but never from a slave. He pictured this justice parading before crowds with a rapturous grin. Perhaps the man was handsome beneath his mask. Perhaps he was ugly. Either could hold an audience. Justice spoke, and his voice grew darker. Then, one night, came a woman to the man with the short name, and she trilled that chipper name and asked a question. Are you sworn not to tell what I confess to you? The man nodded. Did you see this belly? She asked. He looked down and saw her rough hands caressing her distended womb. He nodded. Then she chirped his lilting name and told him who had put the baby there. The pleasant-named fellow was, indeed, sworn to secrecy. I am not. Turner looked up at Justice. Was this the story of Turner? Was this man a past acquaintance of Smoker and Sophia? Justice did not seem aware of Turner's gaze. He spoke as though he didn't care who listened. The woman said that she had been molested over and over by her master. The woman said that she had wanted to say no, but that a no would do nothing to stop her master and would only cause more pain. The slave priest told her that her master had done a terrible thing. I, He said that she would be rewarded in her next life for the pain she had endured, and that her master would face justice. That is a vow I still intend to keep. No, Turner said, that's not true. My mother... Fool! Justice screamed. He gave Turner another taste of pain. You see nothing but your own pain. You hate pain, so you flee from it. Justice turned away. Love the gift of pain, then you will see the pain of others. Others? It bothered Turner more that Justice had spoken of pain as a gift, and not for the first time. Justice saw pain as a gift, and had the means to dispense that gift to others. That word, that justice of which I... He spoke. Oh, how she longed to hear it. Then, turning, she looked up from the campfire gathering, looked up to the big house and said my name, that chipper, bright name, and told me that the midwives said she would likely die in childbirth. Would this act of service, she asked, make her a divine? Turner heard a strange noise. Justice was weeping now. He'd lost all pretense to divinity. 
Turner saw justice as he was, a broken, bitter man, ruled by his own pain. Justice gripped the sides of his hooded skull. I said that to seek this goal would be an act of suicide. She promised that she would try to live. Justice ran his gloves up and down the hood, dragging it this way and that. Turner saw flashes of his head. His hair was gone, as was much of his scalp. His ears were clipped, as though they'd been gnawed on by rats. Turner knew that the man must be hideous, but Turner had not the strength to care. Who was this woman? Who was her baby? Then Justice grew still and quiet. She did try, or so I'm told. I'm told that she smiled when she failed. Turner understood at once. He looked at Faye. She rocked back and forth. She did not cry. When Faye finally looked back at Turner, she wore an energetic snarl. Justice is bringing my father, she said. Don't stand in my way. Chapter 36 Turner spun, searching the courtyard below. The height was dizzying, and he didn't know if he could distinguish one man from another at this distance. Were they here? Already? There was a wave of air across the yard. Tendrils of smoke twisted from the ground, and, like a scared flock of birds, turned in unison and formed a dark cyclone. There was a centaur-shaped flash of light within that cloud, and the flash sucked in the smoke, which stuck like flesh to a luminous being. No, not one being, but two. The man's fine clothing and long hair fluttered in the wind. Diamarchus, his wolf's white coat, bristled to suggest the muscle underneath. Lucy, Marcus's mean bitch. The noble had a moment of shock before more smoke poured up and around him. More forms took shape. Horses, men, guns, all twisting their necks and coping with shock. There were dozens, with more than enough firepower to overtake the undefended fortress. At their head was the bandit named Matthew, crouched atop his wolf, Matches. Both Matthew and the wolf looked directly to the high tower and seemed to meet Turner's eyes. The bandit didn't pause to think. His revolver was already in his hand. The wolves dashed as one toward the tower. It was all that saved their riders. There was another shout. The shout turned in a moment to a scream. It started from the rear of the bandit ranks, but didn't stay there. Soon it came from every horseman's mouth. Their horses, not yet given the order to charge, skipped and shivered at the noise. Turner recognized the shaking, spasming muscles and the blistering screams of the bandits. Petricide. Stop, Turner said. He looked to Justice. Please, that's beyond enough. Justice kept his arm outstretched toward his foes. Faye stood just behind him, watching on with an unreadable expression. Below, the wolves had slowed. The black and white beasts searched fruitlessly for a way inside the tower, leaving their masters to look back at the horsemen with confusion. Their confusion soon turned to alarm. There was a gunshot. Turner shied back, still terrified by the noise, and managed to miss both the shooter and his target. Peering over the battlement, he saw a man slumped over in his saddle like a sack of beans, a gun hanging limp from his lifeless hand. The shooter and the target were one and the same. The idea spread like a shockwave. One by one, three dozen horsemen came to that same conclusion. The pain of petricide was too great for any man to bear, 
and these men had guns with which to end their pain. Matthew and Marcus stared on in horror as the last of their men self-terminated. Turner could only look back at Justice. I ought to rush the old madman, Turner thought, yet his mind kept finding shameful excuses not to attack. Every excuse led back to the memory of his pain, and every memory of his pain made Turner's resolve all the worse. Put down your firearms, Justice said, or this may go badly for you. Dia Marcus dropped his revolver like it was on fire. Matthew took a moment longer, and then his weapon clattered onto the stone. Marcus was the first to scream. The bandit took a moment longer. Turner looked away. He looked not at the ruthless priest, but at Fay. His throat was stone, and he found it impossible to speak, to ask Fay to please, please make it all stop. Fay, he rasped. Fay met Turner's eye, then looked away. It was too late. He had already read her expression. She was afraid. In her wide, darting eyes, Turner finally understood that justice was all Faye had ever hoped and feared for. Her only defense against abuse was an abuse of her own. He deserves it, Faye said in a voice, half-whispered. They all do. Maybe they do, Turner found the strength to speak. This isn't like you. It's exactly like me. Faye could not meet Turner's eyes. They both heard the unending, mournful screams. You know what they're feeling, Turner shouted. Faye, I don't want to remember this when I look at you. I know you're better than this. Faye looked up. Her uncertainty vanished in a flash. You peasant. Slave. If you knew who I was, you'd have me down there screaming with the others. No. She took a step toward Turner, then took a step back. I want my father dead. That's all I've wanted for years and years, and all I've planned for, and I just wanted you to understand, to tell me you understand, just once. But you're oblivious. You worship Marcus like you worshipped his daughter. You're his daughter. Idiot, Faye hissed. This wasn't my first plan. Who do you think gave Smoker that poison? Turner felt weak. Faye's eyes went wide. I didn't want to kill the girls. That was Smoker. He lied. Turner looked away, disgusted. He had suspected, but that was before he'd grown to know Faye, grown to care for her. Turner looked back over the battlement. The two men below were beating on the saddles of their wolves. If their goal was to get their own wolves to eat them, they were very close in succeeding. Turner hoped that what he was about to do would not kill him. He rushed toward the old man named Justice, at any second, he knew he would hit a wall of incomparable pain and beg for release. But the pain never came. What happened was somehow worse. Faye stepped in front of him. Turner tried to slip around her. Faye leaned into a shove that sent Turner spinning off balance, fighting to keep his footing until suddenly there was no more ground to tread. Turner felt an eerie weightlessness. He looked up at the lip of the tower. He'd fallen off. This was it. The end. Faye's gonna feel pretty bad about this, he thought. He didn't want to die, but he didn't see that he had a choice. Chapter 37 There was a flash. Suddenly, it was the floor rather than the sky that was rushing away from him. Turner was falling up. He flailed, floated, then fell again, this time from a height of five feet. After his days wore off, Turner looked up. He was sore, but alive. 
Once again, the sky hearth phenomenon had transported Turner through space. Turner had wanted it, so had Justice, apparently. Turner looked up at the tower. Justice still held his prisoners in pain, but Faye no longer seemed to care. She leaned over the battlements to look down where Turner had fallen. Turner's mind was still spinning, but he thought he saw Justice shaking his shrouded head. Turner stood, unsteady. The sight before him did little to calm his nerves. He was surrounded by bodies and spooked horses, some of whom were galloping for cover from the strange scene at the tower. He considered picking up a gun, but shied away once he remembered how these men had come across their head wounds. The huge doors to the peasant's hall creaked open. Turner ran toward them. Along the way, he shouted at the top of his lungs, Pup! Wolf pup! He neither saw nor heard his mount, and he feared the worst. Turner burst into the storehouse hall, and the doors closed behind him. His mother wrapped him up in her arms, and it was as if there had never been any anger between them. Now that Turner had seen the real enemy and the possibility of death, all their petty disagreements seemed irrelevant. It was as if discord could only survive among peace. What happened? she asked. Faye pushed. Turner paused, too shocked to feel sorrow. She tried to kill me. I saw you fall, Sophia squeezed her boy tighter. I... Later, later. Turner looked back. The other peasants were busy bracing the door with tables and chairs. What's that for? It's... Sophia sighed. It's a long time coming. We've been wondering if justice is any better than those we fled. After seeing that... I don't think there's a soul in this room who doesn't want to leave the Hollow Fortress. How? Too many revelations crowded Turner's mind. Among them, there was only one sure impossibility. We're not leaving until Justice wants us to. Sophia let go of Turner. Why? Does he strike you as divine? The opposite, but he controls this fortress. What if he didn't? Turner shook his head and lowered his voice. Talk like that, and there will be pain. Listen to yourself, Sophia hissed. Then, looking up, she addressed the rest of the peasants. Listen to us. Listen to how we talk about justice, as if all we can do for the rest of our lives is avoid his wrath. It probably is, said one of the strangers. What if there's more, Sophia asked. That's what got us here in the first place. We left home based on the slightest chance that things could get better than just avoiding pain. It's hope that brought us here. Turner hung his head. Exactly. Hope brought us lower than we were before. We knew that it could, but we still came. Why? Because home was bullshit, said another stranger. A strange, nervous laugh spread around the gathering peasants. They had counted 54 in the fortress, 58 if one included Turner and the new arrivals. Turner began to count the members now gathered in the hall. 5, 10, 15. That's right, Sophia said. Home was awful, she approached the translator, who was whispering to the five Torre Evango. Twenty. Not as awful as this, said the first stranger. Turner kept counting. Twenty-five, thirty, thirty-five. Really? Sophia asked. It must have been more horrible than we realized. Everything in our bones screamed that there must be something more to life than what we had. We were under a torture justice could not conceive. If not, why would we gamble at all for the slimmest chance at something more? If our old life was in the least bit valuable, why would we dare to throw it away for some baseless hope? Turner's ears picked up. 
The pain is a gift. The translator stopped translating. He turned to Turner with disgust. I'm not passing that on to the Torah of Ango. You have no idea what they've been through. I don't, Turner said. But I know my pain. I know the purpose of pain. It's a gift. It's a feeling that drives me away from evil places. So, the translator scoffed, it sure drove away those men outside. These diamond miners have lost more to suicide than any cave-in or explosion. Kenon Ermine? asked the one-eyed Torah Van Gogh. Yes, repeated the translator. If our only goal is to escape this man, why not just kill ourselves? Because there might be another way, Sophia said. Because there's hope. Mine, repeated the Torah Van Gogh. Yes, yours, scoffed the translator. He turned back to Turner. Listen, he doesn't understand what you're saying. He thinks you're asking him for help. Maybe we are, Turner said. He looked around at the other peasants, 40, 45. Listen, we need any option that doesn't involve obeying or attacking justice. Both lead to death. We need an alternative, no matter how crazy. The one-eyed Torre Vango stepped forward, red-faced. He bellowed like a foghorn. Mine! Mine! He pointed to the floor, then made a flowing, river-like gesture. Que non respierte! Mine! The room went silent. Turner and the other peasants shared confused glances. The puzzled translator began conversing with all five of the Torre Vango in a confused flurry of words and gestures. The only thing that kept Turner from moving on without them was the gradual shift in the translator's eye. Something like a glow came over the man. Something like hope. Turner had finished his counting. Fifty-five people were gathered in the storehouse hall. I'm so sorry, the translator sputtered. I, I thought he meant mine, not mine. One of the peasants giggled. The translator spun on the laughter with a defensive posture. No, no, a cognate, a difference. He was speaking our language, not his. He was trying to tell us about mines, about the underground diamond mines that the feed used to work. He wants us to dig? Sophia asked. She began to use her descriptive gestures, trying to bypass the language barrier. Dig for what? The one-eyed man spoke so rapidly that Turner could not tell where one word ended and another began. A minute passed, though it seemed like an hour, before the translator looked back at Turner with a too-wide grin. Not digging, he said. There is a way out, but you won't like it. Turner looked around. Why me? he asked, though he knew the answer. Fifty-five were gathered here. They had no one outside of this room to whom they could turn. No one but the fifty-sixth, the wolf pup. Turner breathed deep before answering. Any way is better than no way. The translator chuckled. Don't be so sure. He tapped his shoe against the smooth stone floor. The noise echoed around the great hall. Have you ever wondered why this place is called the Hollow Fortress? Chapter 38 Turner found his wolf in the huge cavern beneath the tower. The sky hearths in the dome bathed pup in gray, static light. Yellow eyes opened at Turner's approach. They closed moments later, lazy and bored. There was a stirring of fear in Turner's mind. Not a fear that Pup might attack, but a fear that he might not care about Turner at all. It's not me you liked, Turner said. It's my smell, my voice, my halfway resemblance to Switchblade. 
He made his way across the impossibly large floor. The air was not still, but flowing, as though the room had its own climate. He couldn't believe that he hadn't felt it before. Pup's eyes opened again. His focus on Turner was cold and scientific. But I'm not my father, Turner said. You've seen that now. I'm no wolf rider. Pup cocked his black eyebrow fur. Wolf rider. There was a word he knew. It doesn't matter what words I use, Turner said. He stopped ten meters from the great wolf. If you knew every word in every language, there'd still be nothing I could say to make you obey me. Pup's snout twisted at the word obey. I won't try, Turner said. You've seen my nature. Turner raised his right hand. He could feel a touch of breeze on his palm. He tried to follow it, and it led him left, away from Pup. The miners knew the air in this room, he said. They knew it on instinct. An instinct they thought we all had. They thought that we all guessed what they knew. This room is an air vent. Air pushes down from that sky hearth above and into one or more of these portals. Turner's hand lost the breeze. He sighed. What good are good intentions? The world is the chaos of opposed intention. Bad intention is a poison gas. Even a clean and noble breeze can cascade into a hurricane. My whole life I've been falling afoul of good intentions. My mother tried her best. My father tried his best. They left me motherless and fatherless for all their best intent. I tried my best. I failed Eve, Jack. Damnation, even Faye. Pup sighed. Sorry, Turner said. I'm just feeling bad for myself. What I have to do is hard. It gets harder when I think about how it could go awry. How all my best intentions and best work could still leave the world worse than it was before. Turner looked up at the bright clouds. The sky hearths could transport inanimate objects. Who was to say they couldn't transport air? Justice didn't need to control petricide. With just the power of the sky hearths, justice could transport petricide directly into someone's mouth, nose, or lungs. Justice could transport the pain gas directly into towns like Elaine Junction or cities like Ulgrad. Justice could wipe the earth clean of mankind. With the obedience of Turner and the others, he could start humanity all over again. Turner lifted his hand and tried to find the breeze. The motion shocked the wounded flesh of his shoulder. Turner looked down. His shirt was wet with the trickle of blood. Turner grinned. He removed his shirt. It took his body a moment to adjust to the sudden chill, but soon the chill rested against his wet, wounded shoulder. The pain highlighted the breeze, accentuating every touch of air into a wave of static. Turning away from the pain, Turner made his way toward the center of the room. From there, the source of the wind was evident. He moved toward the door furthest from the storehouse. Pup's soft whine echoed across the room. Turner glanced back. I'd tell you what comes next, but you wouldn't understand. I'd tell you that it's for the best, but I don't know that for sure. He looked back and continued toward the sky hearth portal but it'll hurt, and I'm going to do it anyway. So maybe it's the right choice. Or maybe I just don't care about pain. He frowned. Worse, maybe. Maybe I like it.
Turner arrived at the door. The breeze was slow and steady on his back. This was where all the wind was going. The sky hearth above him was transporting air into this room, and the weight of the air was pushing out through this portal. That meant it was open. That meant that this portal led somewhere that needed fresh oxygen. What was on the other side of this portal might be damnation itself, but there was only one way to know for sure. Alone, Turner stepped through. Chapter 39 The heat made Turner glad he'd removed his shirt. It blasted at his face, dry and stiff. The blood on Turner's shoulder began to harden almost immediately. The only relief was the cool wind at Turner's back, moist and chilling by comparison. The room ahead was equally strange. The floor and ceiling were flat stone, parallel to one another and ten feet apart. The walls were stone, apart from the wall ahead, which looked to be made of a strong, semi-transparent crystal. At first, Turner thought that the crystal was tinted red. In fact, the only light in the room was red, though not due to the color of the crystal, but the color of the fire beyond. Turner had never seen such fire before. It looked like a lake of molten metal, a distortion of the crystal, surely. Boy, said a familiar voice. Turner looked toward the sound. A figure sprang from the room's darkest corner. Boy, the figure repeated. Come here. Marcus? Turner asked. The figure shivered. Dear Marcus, you brat. Marcus flinched, as if he expected some sort of punishment. His dark eyes glowed red as he looked around the room. Whatever he had been expecting had not come. His mouth twisted into a bare-toothed sneer. Indeed, he said, Dia, master of you and all the other upstarts. What good has mastery done you, Marcus? Turner looked around the room. Where are we? Marcus stalked forward. You will address me with respect. I promised someone your heart if you had one. Turner frowned. I can see now that I needn't bother. Who's there? said another voice. Several figures stirred from behind Marcus. They were all stripped down to their undergarments and sweat shone on their weathered skin. Another slave, said the voice. I'm no slave, Marcus said. Turner saw that Marcus's clothes had been torn apart and folded back together again. It must be terribly hot in those clothes. Beneath the torn fabrics were streaks of red. You've been clawing at yourself, Turner said. I'm sorry. A slave's pity. Marcus limped forward. His breathing revealed that even this slow march was causing him pain. I'll need your pity when I need the pity of ants and termites and... Turner raised his hand. Wait. Marcus seized, then crashed to the floor. He writhed in terrible agony. Please, he screamed. Stop, please. Laughter rang out from the corner where Marcus had been. Turner counted three others, an old man, a middle-aged woman, and someone under a thin blanket. Marcus continued screaming. Turner raised his hands and stepped away from Marcus. I'm not doing anything. You will. No, I... Turner raised both hands to calm the man. The gesture had the opposite of its intended effect. Your hands! The hands! The petricide! Turner lowered his hands. The man stopped twitching. He started weeping. Turner had never heard Marcus use the word please, much less cry for mercy. He'd never known the man to shed tears, much less that he could. Turner knelt down. He pressed his hands against the stone. I won't hurt you, Marcus. I promise. They said that I would be safe here, Marcus whimpered. They said that I'd be safe and fed so long as the ammonium nitrate flows. 
Fertilizer? Turner frowned. Flows where? I don't know, Marcus shouted. Any idiot can see what they're doing here. We make sure the tanks stay at a certain temperature and pressure. The same heat and pressure is used to make fertilizer. Please, you have to believe me. I don't know anything else. Turner blinked. An idea began to form in his mind. Where are these tanks? Marcus whimpered. It's so hot out there. I wouldn't go if I could help it. We only do as he says so that we don't get hurt. You won't show me? Marcus began to writhe again. Turner did pity the man. For all Marcus's life, he had at least been able to prop himself up on his pride. The fall from arrogance was inevitable and terrible. Humility was not, in the end, some noble behavior, but rather an act of self-preservation. The old man in the corner laughed and slapped his knee. Look at that. He thinks the boy is justice. The man gave Turner a toothless grin. I'm happy you're here. For a while, it was just me and this ugly hack. Now, we've got a gentleman and two peasants to share the load. All pretty, too. What's pretty got to do with it? Turner asked. The middle-aged woman sighed. It's the only reason this old bastard keeps living. Distractions from the fire. I'm just glad we've got someone else to... What'd you say, bastard? Share the load? The old woman cackled. Shut up, said the girl in the blanket. Turner will kill you if you try. Even if it means more work for him. He's a judge. Turner stared down at the blanket. He couldn't believe his ears. Maybe the heat and pressure of this place were getting to him. What are you doing here? He asked. She turned over, sliding out from under the blanket. Faye's dark eyes danced with firelight. Turner had never seen her stomach, her thighs, or shoulders. The slave brand on her thigh wasn't the worst of it. Small, shallow cracks ran up and down her stomach. The marks on her arms had not, in the end, been done by torture. Poison, Turner thought. Night harvest. I came because I wanted to come, she said. It's what we deserve. Chapter 40 Faye showed Turner the space between the crystal. It was the only doorway between here and what Faye called the Lake of Fire. You can feel the heat from here, she said. She passed her hand over the whistling exit. It will strike you like a hammer. You will want to run to get it over with, but you can't. Running will sap your energy, and if you slip and touch the rock, it'll hurt much worse than the air. What about my feet? The path doesn't retain heat, and I'm not sure why. Despite himself, Turner glanced again at Faye's subdermal scars. I told you not to ask, she said. If you do, I won't show you the path. Faye stepped through the exit. Turner took a deep breath, then followed. Turner surveyed the room beyond. Like the sun, the lake below burned his eyes and made him look away. Unlike the sun, the lake gave off only dark red light so dim that it did not reach the tops of the volcano's steep walls. Faye had called it a volcano, but there was no sky above the walls, but only dull, half-active sky hearths. Turner found it difficult to breathe. Every breath pained his throat. The air sat in his lungs like a hot stone. Inhale, damn you, Faye said. We're almost there. They walked on. Turner's feet were cool against the ground. 
He wanted to press his entire body against the path just to keep it out of the air. He couldn't. He had to press on. Our bandit Matthew took justice up on his offer, Faye said. We can leave any time we want. The offer is still open to all of us. Turner tried to answer, but lacked the strength. His pants were rolled up past his knees and already soaked through with sweat. Faye had told him to disrobe. He now saw why and obeyed. Faye waited on him. We're all here for different sins. Justice says we can leave whenever we choose. Why? Turner wheezed. He got his pants off and left them on the path. Why haven't you? Because Justice needs someone to keep the tanks maintained, Faye said. He won't admit it, but he's too weak to care for them on his own. But there are others. The fire will convince them to give up their ways. They don't deserve this. I do. They trudged on. Turner could only faintly see the path ahead. What about me? Turner asked. I tried to stop justice. Did I deserve? I didn't want to kill you, Faye interrupted. Then what earned you your damnation? Faye didn't answer. You don't deserve this. You don't deserve whatever made you hurt. I told you not to ask. Faye glanced back at Turner, then looked away. There were dried tear streaks on her cheeks. In this heat, dried tears could have been made minutes or hours ago. Justice doesn't want you here, Turner repeated. Faye took another five steps before answering the unasked question. When Justice sent my father to this place, I had the strangest feeling. I still wanted punishment, I always have. I thought that punishing Marcus would make the desire go away, but it only remained. They had reached a rock wall, and Faye pointed to crannels in the stone. Pay close attention. Only use the handholds that I use, or you'll be burned. Turner followed Faye's directions, making note of each movement in his mind, yet he could not help but avert his eyes from time to time. There was surprise and shame in seeing Faye undressed, not because she was half-clothed, but because of what the skin revealed. The shame cost Turner three scorched fingers as he climbed the wall. They kept on. We're almost there, Faye repeated. You said that before. This time it's true. Faye looked over her shoulder. Three gauges and three valves were built into the stone wall of the volcano. It took only moments to find the gauge that displayed the tank's pressure. He looked around. There were large bags of ammonium nitrate. He tore open the bag. The chemical was mixed to form sand-shaped crystals the color of salt. In moments, Turner had several handfuls of the stuff wrapped up in strips of burlap. Turner looked down at the gauges. I'm going to blow it up, he said. Justice will probably kill me, but he won't have his chemicals any longer. Are you sure that's the right thing? Faye asked. You've seen the world, Turner. You know it's not right. Do you really think that you and I could do better? Faye hung her head. I'm sorry for Eve. I never meant... I know, Faye, Turner said. I'm sorry that you felt like dying. No, not die, just hurt. So when you tasted the daughter's food that night, you were immune. And I'm sorry. I don't want... Faye began, then choked on her words. I do. I want pity. I want pity for myself. It makes me sorry that I feel that, but I do. So, I wish we wouldn't talk about my skin at all. Turner grabbed her by the arm. He pulled her closer. Stop. That's not what I meant. I know. 
The tears dried almost as fast as Faye could make them. And that makes me feel worse. But pain isn't the answer. Turner felt the tears drying on his own cheeks. He locked eyes with Faye. Pain is something to hate. I do hate it. That's why I hurt. I don't understand. Faye spoke in pained whispers. I don't want you to understand. She reached past Turner. With one swift motion, she turned the valve. The gauge that told the pressure began to rise. There, she muttered. Hurry up and leave. I won't. The heat weighed on Turner's shoulders. I can't. Didn't you hear me? You can leave if you want to, right now. I can't, Turner said. Because everything you feel, I feel. I want you to know that everything you do to hurt yourself will hurt me. Faye opened her lips to deny it. Looking down, she saw Turner's dried blood. I won't live if you won't. I know that's a shitty thing of me to put on you, but that's the price you'll have to pay. Turner got down on one knee. Unless you leave this damnation, I'm not moving from this spot. You'll die. And I don't want to die. I don't want to burn, but I will. Turner began to shake. You love pain, but you don't love my pain. And your pain is mine. So I'm going to be by your side until you hate pain as much as I do. Faye knelt down until their eyes were level. She touched the side of his head. Go, please. No. Don't be so oblivious. I am evil. You are mistaken. No, leave. Faye looked frantically from eye to eye. Why, damn you. Turner kissed her. It was quick, almost involuntary, and Turner pulled away in shame. I'm sorry, he said. I just wanted... Faye kissed him back. They held there for a while, despite the clicking of the pressure gauge or the heat of the volcano. When Faye pulled away, her dry lips clung to his. They shared a strange, nervous giggle. We're stuck, Faye said, prying their lips apart. Yes, we are. That was weird. Yeah. Leave. Once you do, Turner promised. I've... Faye began. She stopped, then nodded. Clouds wrapped around her, and she was gone. I want to follow her, Turner said. Wherever she goes, I want to go. There was a flash, and Turner was gone. Chapter 41 The boom sounded all up the mountain. It rang across the fortress yard, echoing from the halls and towers. Turner and Faye were in the large, domed room. The sky hearths in the portals and the dome shuddered, as if disrupted. Amidst the echoing rumble came a lower, steadier sound. The two looked up to see the wolf named Pup approaching, teeth bared and growling. The boom repeated. The wolf snapped its jaws. Turner stood, showing Pup his palms. Don't worry, he said. You're safe. You're fine. Pup lowered his head and growled. His eyes shifted from Turner to Fay. Pup blinked. Fay remained on the floor. She hugged her chest with her arms, but met the wolf's eyes. Pup relaxed his lips. He looked to Turner and studied the boy. Turner could do nothing but wait. Nothing he could say or do would keep this wolf from enacting its will. 
Turner didn't know what he read in Pup's expression. The black over Pup's eyes and the white beneath his chin told of a gentling of mood. The wolf seemed calm. He seemed to have resolved some conflict in his mind. Pup lowered himself onto his belly. He placed his chin on the ground and looked up at Turner and Fay. Turner nodded. Thank you, he said. I'll try not to let you down. Chapter 42 Turner and the others stared across the yard. The peasants were lined up shoulder to shoulder, men and women, young and old, Kirash and Tora Ivango. Every one of them had to be present to make their unanimity known. Turner and Pup stood at their head. Turner had strapped himself to the saddle, keenly aware that he might be struck with petricide at any time. This awareness hovered over every one of his comrades. They wore no weapons. They would not shoot themselves if petricide came flooding down, but that didn't mean that they wouldn't find some other ways of ending their pain. They had to hope that justice still wanted his people. They had to hope that justice wanted converts, not corpses. Pups stirred beneath Turner. The creature was their only offensive weapon. Unfortunately, Pup was outnumbered. Luckily, Turner had one means of defense. He placed his hand on the flask at his side. The bandit Matthew sat fully armored atop the wolf matches. They and the white wolf Lucy stood at the base of Justice's tower. Turner had hoped that the peasants and Matthew could find common cause. Matthew did not look ready to budge. You won't win, Faye said. Turner looked down. Faye was atop one of the braver horses that had come with the bandits. She, too, was tied by the ankles to her stirrups and by the waist to her saddle horn. He's got two guns and two wolves, Faye continued. Let me bring my revolver. Let me take one shot. Justice would hit you with petricide. He wouldn't kill me, Faye replied. You heard him up there. I'm the whole reason he started this mess. The idea of you started this, Turner corrected. He's a man of ideals now. His ideals trump the humans they were meant to serve. Faye took a deep breath. She nodded. Stick to the plan, then. Turner nodded. They both looked forward and set their mounts to a slow, steady trot. Matthew and his wolves watched on. Matthew's black helm glinted as he looked to the top of the tower. Justice was nowhere to be seen. The bandit shrugged, then pushed his wolves forward at a leisurely pace. Three humans, three wolves, and a very nervous horse met in the center of the yard. The stones here stank of deer carcass. The smell of dried blood and the sight of enemies made the wolves growl and sneer. Dia Marcus's wolf Lucy kept her dichromatic eyes on Faye. The two knew each other from their time at the big house. Try as he might, Turner could not read anything but anger on Lucy's face. Young Turner, said Matthew. We never did find your body. Always hoped you still lived. What happened to the Redeemers? Turner asked. Exactly what deserved to happen. Faye scowled. Working for a different slaver now. You can't help but be used. The bandit turned up his chin. I found a man who can move anything from anywhere to anywhere. It's safe to say we're all his to use. He can only move me where I want to move, Faye said. Can you say the same? Matthew snapped his fingers. 
Somewhere on Earth, a man just fired a rifle. Justice can transport his bullet mid-flight, pack it into your brain pan. Justice could fill your lungs with rocks, could drown you with hornets. Justice could pick lions and tigers from the mists, wolves and bears from the far north, and array them against you like chessmen against pawns. He could do all of this, yet he chooses me. He chooses you two. I hope for something better, Faye said. Then you are a fool. The three stared at one another. Their wolves began to circle one another, growling, snapping. The horse finally spooked. Faye cursed as her mount ran away with her. Matthew hissed a command. The white wolf broke rank and gave chase. Turner watched helplessly as Faye's horse tried for its escape. No matter how large the fortress might be, the horse could not stay clear of Lucy for long. Not going to help her? Matthew asked. He lowered the visor on his helmet. Turner sneered. He wanted to help, but turning his back on this black wolf was suicide. He could not help but notice how much Matthew now looked like the redeemers he purported to hate. Even with these odds, Matthew shouted, you are no match for me. You're right, Turner said. This is my fourth or fifth ride. And even so, Justice still wants you as his rider, Matthew snickered. If you don't come to heal, you'll face a man that is more than a man. You cannot defeat him, young Turner. You cannot even defeat me. I can't, Turner said. But I intend to. Well, how? I don't know how, Turner breathed deep. The intention, though, that's what matters. Matthew squinted. His hand went to his revolver. Turner held fast to his wolf. Pup lunged forward. Matches lunged back. Matthew had been ready for this. His revolver was out. Turner hugged his wolf's armor. The revolver fired once, twice. This was the plan, Turner told himself. So long as Matthew was firing at Turner, he was not firing at Pup. Turner had been hit. He knew that. He knew that he was still breathing. This was the plan. Phase in no better straits. He wanted badly to use his flask for defense. Instead, he endured the pain. Pup's teeth locked around the sides of Match's lower jaw. There was a terrible jerk as the wolves pulled one another by their teeth. Match's was getting the worst of it. Matthew fired again, but the shot went wild as the mounts bucked. The man in armor shouted a command to his dog. The black mount rose up, digging its claws into Pup's shoulder armor. Pup kept his jaws shut, and the two rose like tent poles until Matthew and Turner could do nothing but hold on. Turner looked down. He was missing two fingers. He groaned, pressing the mangled stumps against his shirt. Pup finally let go. His head jerked down, quick as a snake bite. Turner saw Match's eyes go wide and try to match the gray. It was too late. Matches twisted free of Pup's grasp, but not without leaving behind fur, skin, and blood. Matthew raised his revolver. Turner raised his empty hands. Matthew laughed at the sight. Quite a lightweight, quitting at two fingers. Kill me, and my wolf will be the last one standing. And what if I kill your wolf? If. Turner saw a flash of white out of the corner of his eye. Both Turner and Matthew looked to the white wolf. There, on Lucy's back, was the girl Turner had once called Faces. Of all the faces she had, this one, steel-set eyes, hair whipping in the wind, suited her best. Those two know one another, Turner said. Mean bitch. 
Matthew raised his gun toward Faye. Turner's mount leapt forward. The dogfight spoiled Matthew's shot. The men cursed, and matches spun to meet Faye's charge. Pup lunged again. Before the black dog could react, Matthew was torn from his saddle. Pup scampered away from Matches, whipping Matthew back and forth like a clattering ragdoll. Matches tried to retrieve its master, but the white wolf stepped in, barking. The black dog could only look on and whine as Pup gave his final shake, dropping the armored, lifeless body onto the stone. Turner looked up and toward the tower. The blood and the pain and the noise were intoxicating. Turner wanted to run up that tower face on his own. Justice looked down, his face unreadable beneath the mask. Turner raised his bloody hand and screamed, Live without hope. Die all the same. Why not try, Justice? Why not hope for more? Justice gestured to Turner. Come. Turner bared his teeth. Yes, he hissed. Wait, Faye said. No, not without... A fog wrapped over Turner's eyes. There was a flash. Turner found himself atop Justice's tower. I knew I was right, Justice said. My vanguard, my champion. Turner looked down. The last two fingers on his left hand were still bleeding out. Turner pulled up his flask. He'd been keeping it all this time, and there was so much pain. Suffering makes you strong, Justice said. And yet you drink? Turner nodded. He sank to his knees and, with one hand, unscrewed the flask. He emptied the contents into his mouth. Not water, but stale air, the taste of tin. The gas was made from heating fertilizer, with the taste to match. Turner looked up. Justice approached, his pain-making hand at the ready. You made a mistake. You destroyed my tanks. No matter. I have half a planet's worth of petricide. I thought you wanted it all. Is half enough? No, Justice sighed. You'll understand the value of pain. You'll have a new mind. Then you'll rebuild our hollow fortress. Justice extended his hand. Turner felt like his body was being pulled in all directions, all at once. He felt his bones rejecting his muscles, his skin splitting open like dried, cracked mud, his eyes folding open like flowers in bloom. Justice withdrew his hand. Once you've experienced this, you can experience anything. Without pain, what would pleasure be? Pain is a gift. The shadow of pain points to light. No, Turner said. Justice's hand came up. Turner felt it again, all pain, all at once. It fixed Turner in time and space. It would be etched into Turner's memory, there to be relived over and over forever. No, Justice asked. If pain isn't good for anything, why do we need it? Why does it flow so acutely when life is most poignant? Why does pain feel so special? Turner gasped. His head was swimming, but not only with pain. No, he said. Justice raised his hand again. Turner tried to cry out. Instead, he began to laugh. Justice's eyes went wide. His hand dropped. Turner gripped his stomach. He laughed. He laughed as though pain were some cosmic joke. Crawling to one knee, he looked up at Justice's shrouded face and laughed again. What? Justice sent Turner another shockwave of pain. Turner felt it as skin feels sunlight, 
hot, perhaps, but lively. Justice poured petricide past Turner's lips. The static on his tongue was pleasant and horrid, like spice. Turner stepped forward. Justice's eyes were wide. What? Turner laughed. The gas had taken away Turner's ability to feel. Pain is good justice. It tells us when something's wrong. Without evil, we do not need pain. How do you still live? Justice asked. This pain breaks a man, makes him a god. He leveled his hand. The pain was under Turner's eyelids like cool tears. The pain was nothing. Hope, Turner stumbled forward, laughing. I hope that pain will end. I hope, and that gets me through. You are intoxicated, Justice shrieked. You and I both, sir. Turner grabbed the old man by his mask. He pulled. Turner was too drunk on laughing gas to really understand what he was seeing. Later, he would describe it as a fruit, rotted and dried and rolled in dust. Justice was right. Whoever he had been long ago had been replaced by zealotry. Justice was not a man with a man's mercy. Justice was a machine for justice. No, please, said the old priest. I have so much to do. That's why I have to stop you, Turner said. He pushed. In his unfeeling delirium, Turner tripped, and it was all that saved him from falling off the tower with justice. Turner didn't see what happened next. He heard, though, a thump, followed by a gasping crowd, followed by silence. Turner could not celebrate. Faye had been right. Justice had harbored good intentions, mistaken and unquestioned as they were. No one ever found out why the old man didn't save himself with the portal. Perhaps he'd worn out that power for himself. Perhaps his faith had been shaken. But Turner thought, both then and later, that justice only had the power to transport people where they wanted to go. Turner wondered if, in that moment, all that justice really wanted was an end to pain. Turner sighed and collapsed. He closed his eyes. He had no control over what came next. He'd tried to do the right thing. That was enough. Chapter 43 Turner stared up at the sky. Horizon to horizon, it was filled with bright clouds and warm daylight. It was filled with Faye's voice. Turner? Yes? Do you want to come with us? Yeah, he said. There was a flash. The ground shook, and the air gave off a tremendous boom. He looked up. He was still on the tower. Faye and Sophia were by his side. He frowned. We, we didn't go anywhere. Well, Sophia began. Faye shook her head. We did, actually. We just had to wait for you to want it. Turner blinked. I'm not sure I understand. He looked down at his hand. The mangled halves of his leftmost fingers had been tied off and bandaged. You've still got the first joint, Sophia said. I'm sorry, we wanted to finish while you still had the nitrous. No, it's a good choice, Turner winced. Will it always ache like this? We don't know. Turner looked up at Faye. You okay? She nodded. Got a few too many pats on the back. Some people mistook me for you. 
I am very pretty. Faye grinned and rolled her eyes. Sophia raised an eyebrow but said nothing. Turner sniffed the air. Something's off. He licked his lips. Why is the air so warm and salty? Sophia and Faye grinned at one another. They lifted Turner to his feet. Though he felt well enough to walk, he kept a hold of them both. As he approached the lip of the tower, the horizon rose to meet him. Looking down on a wide azure ocean, Turner felt a sense of open and wavy possibility. The vast fortress was seated on a cliff above a natural harbor. We transported the fortress, Sophia said. Turner released them, stumbling clockwise around the tower's perimeter. A rope ladder hung down the tower's side. The land below was a patchwork of farms and small homes, all propped up on a massive plateau. Below, grasses flowed in the wind, and Turner thought he heard the sound of a thundering river in a canyon not a mile off. Where are we? he asked. The bois out back, Sophia answered. Turner grinned. Again, a good choice. He looked at Faye. If the mists start retreating, we would be a foothold on a whole new continent. Faye nodded to the ground. Notice anything? Turner followed her gaze. His grin and his eyes widened. That's the big house. Our farm. He turned. We can transport anything from anywhere. We could... Sophia shook her head. She pointed to the sky hearths. Those are the last bright clouds anyone's going to see for a while. Transporting the fortress meant losing the power to transport, Faye said. Turner blinked. We can't. Nobody can, Sophia said. Turner understood. He hung his head, ashamed. You're not like Justice, Sophia said. You wouldn't have used the power like he did, but we all felt it. The temptation. We gave in, to a degree. Faye pointed down to the land below. Every surf in Koresh got the call about an hour ago. Those who wanted to leave, left. Some came to our new republic. Some stayed behind. Their business. Turner blinked. Hassan? He said that he was falling in love with Ulgrad. He said he'd found a family. I don't know how. Turner thought for a moment, then cursed. Damnation, I hope he's not... He trailed off, then shook his head. Hassan had always wanted family. If Kieran would have him, that was her business. Turner looked down. He took a deep breath. The possibilities had been endless. They could have reshaped the world to their liking. Turner sighed. We have a new home. I should be happy. He looked around. All I can think about is what might have been. All I can think about is more. And that's all we could think of, Sophia said. It's all anyone in the world would have thought, so long as the hollow fortress existed. Turner leaned against the parapet. He stared off into the distance. Luke was right, wasn't he? Yes, Faye said. We just want more and more. Turner saw the far-off foothills of great purple mountains. Despite our best intentions, we just keep going until we have it all, and then we want more than it all. Yes, Sophia said, but the hollow fortress is just hollow now, just a dead rock with a rope ladder.
The thought of climbing down that thing makes me nauseous, Turner said. Your ride is waiting at the bottom, Sophia replied. Turner looked down. Three wolves lay in the shadow of the tower. Matches had a large cloth tied around his neck like a collar. Pup was licking the white wolf's face. Leave him, Turner said. He and Lucy look... occupied. We'll all be occupied if Pup has pups, Faye muttered. Turner met his mother's eyes. I am hungry, Sophia nodded. I'll send up the dumbwaiter. No need for names, Turner said. His mother hugged him. She disappeared down the rope ladder with a knowing smile. Turner shook his head. He took a seat, using the parapet as a backrest. My mother is... He looked up at Faye. I don't know. She's known about since before you knew. Faye smirked and took a knee before him. I thought she knew before you knew. The two watched one another, reveling in the peace. Then the smirk faded from Faye's cheek. I'm not... She sighed. I'm not good yet. Turner raised his left hand. Nobody is. I'm not sure about what I'm feeling. Are you okay if... Faye lowered her eyes. This is going to sound weird. After this week, I think I can handle weird. I want to... I want to wait. She blinked and looked up again. I know. I know you're hurting right now, and so am I, so... You waited for me, Turner said. I'll wait for you to want whatever it is you want. Her smirk returned. You're blushing. Turner nodded. It's a deal. As long as you tell me what you want, when you want it. It was Faye's turn to blush. So weird, she muttered. But she sat down and scooted to Turner's side. There, side by side, they watched the sky until it was swept of storm. Sophia sent up a basket rather than bringing them food, though whether out of laziness or tact, Turner couldn't guess. They shared a basket of flatbread and sweet apples, and Turner wanted nothing more. Well, I hope you have enjoyed this reading of Hollow, the audiobook, written, recorded, and edited, and read to you by me, Paul Yoder. Yeah, it's all done. So thank you for putting up with some goof accents and uh, me having a little bit of fun. Is this is a little bit of fun. You know what it is. Um, yeah, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Uh, thank you if you've been sharing this. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's a free audiobook. Get it out there. People, if you think people would like this, they probably would like this. And it's free, so, like, if they don't like it, then I'll give them their money back, you know? You know what I mean? Uh, man. I got some thoughts. You know what? I'm recording this at midnight. I tried to record this all in one day. And, uh, that's probably <coughs> reflective in my voice. Um, you know what? I'm just gonna go over and do something that, uh, I wanted to do anyway. Which is... I'm just going to talk about, like, the book as a whole. So, what do I think right now? Uh, this being May and me having written this in January. January to May. 
Well, that's not a long time, but some time to think about it. Um, basically, reading it over, I think it's like kind of half-baked, you know? I think there's a lot of cool stuff in here. Um, I really like playing around with the world. Um, I, I really just think that some characters didn't get their full justice. I like the, I like the idea of Matthew. Um, I want to, in some future draft, have him like, you know, be that folksy outlaw hero. And, uh, yeah, I, I guess that's the reason behind him sounding like he's in, uh, Red Dead Redemption too. Um, man, I don't know. I just feel like a lot of the side characters got short shrift. I like where Hassan is. I like how he ended up. I, I really did not plan for him to like be such a big part of the story, but I just loved the idea of like this, uh, I don't know, this like person who's sort of outside of their society who can comment on it in an intelligent way. And I really liked his take of just, um, you, you think you got him figured out, right? As like this sleazy merchant. And he is that, but he's also like a study of human character. And I really like that. Um, man, I just don't, I, Faye and Sophia, um, my like two main fem female leads, man, they got some good, good stuff going on, but oh man, it could be better. It for sure could be better. And part of that is just not having the screen time. Uh, Sophia is gone in a second. Um, Faye uh, disappears for a lot of Turner's uh, adventure near the end there. Um, and just, yeah, going over, I, so I do not like, I don't know exactly where they end romance wise. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where like, oh, we're saving each other's lives. Isn't that crazy? Whoa, probably a lot of feelings are running high. And so probably, probably don't have a clear head there about like what, you know, 40 years of marriage is going to look like. So I would say, yes, I, I think, I think they earned at the end that sort of like, I don't know, like the, the first real crush sort of thing going on between them. Um, and I did want to sort of like, I don't know, I'd love to dive into like the trauma that both of them underwent at the tragedy, tragedy at the beginning. Um, the whole like entire family dying and all that business. Um, I think that that has uh, some like messing up effects. And especially since that is where they were both getting uh, a good degree of their love and validation from the, uh, you know, whether it was Dia Eve, this sort of like, um, I don't know, this more, more of like a, uh, a crush from afar sort of thing where, um, I don't know, Turner doesn't really know this girl, Dia Eve, and, uh, just sort of wants her for who she represents. Whereas, um, my, Faye character, yeah, I mean, also is very upset at her father, and I don't know, I'd like to dive more into that whole thing. I don't know that, like, the whole poison mystery thing came out the way I wanted it to, 
Um, yeah. So, um, another thing that sort of like bugged me is that there's these like, I don't know, there's these sort of like plot lines that don't really go anywhere. And, um, I think like the redeemers were supposed to be sort of a bigger deal in the book. Um, and I hate setting up like a, I hate setting up like an organization like that and just having it be like something that happens, but I don't know. I feel like they come up enough. Um, but yeah, if I was going to expand this book, I'd have them be kind of a bigger deal sort of working with Marcus. Um, I think Marcus is like, I kind of like where he's at. I sort of always pictured him as like one of like America's founding fathers with sort of this idea of himself as a revolutionary and at the same time just being total dillweeds to their slaves. You know, same with like the Confederate, you know, uh, rebellion and stuff. Just the idea of like, oh man, freedom, fighting for our freedom and and freedom for slaves and stuff like that. So I, I think there's a way to do that character in a better way than I did it. Um, yeah, I don't know. Some other things that just like are super weird. And like, if I had the time to cut them out right now, I would. And uh, so like those two dudes in the jail cell who they convinced to like go back inside. I'm not exactly sure like what they were doing there or if that's important. Um, I also, I, I would love to see some more animal fights in there. Like that's a cool friggin' thing. And I liked the few that were in there. I, I think, I think you probably hear it in my voice, like as I'm reading that just like one of my favorite scenes in the book is this like sports event. Um, and just like the way that that sort of I don't know if you want to know a lot about a culture like you can look at their sports and that's just not something i see in a lot of uh fiction especially sort of regarding this time period um yeah i think um i think that there is a a little bit of work that can be done on like the i don't know man it's like this sort of like dr evil like volcano thing at the end and it just strikes me as like so inelegant, but at the same time, I I don't know. I, I, I just kept trying to think of like, what is something that could just like spread a gas throughout the entire earth? And that's what I came up with. Um, yeah, I feel like, I feel like there's a way to sort of double the size of this book and just have it be a lot about this original sort of battle between, you know, Ul and Luke uh, about this, like, original um, idea of holding humanity back for its own good. But then there are other people who sort of see it as, like, not gray or not, like, holding back for its own good. So, for instance, there are characters who could be, like, way more interested in, like, pushing the boundaries of humanity all the way down um, and like taking over the world, um, and like destroying everything that makes it sort of special right now, which is these like gigantic creatures. Um, another thing that I, I don't know the opposite side of that. I mean, there are people today who are like, yeah, let's just 
we are the virus, humans are the virus, and like, let's wipe out humans and the earth will be saved or whatever. And I think both of those worldviews are like really troubling. And I think that they both ignore like the actual contribution of humanity and the actual contribution of, you know, what humanity rules over. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting to me. And so if I were to build out this book, I think I would have there be a lot more like conspiracy going on where like people want to get to the fortress. Uh, people, you know, power players like uh, Marcus and, um, uh, you know, the the catalysts and the uh, redeemers and whatever, um, all wanting to get down there and sort of open up this new like half of the world um, just so that their ideology can spread. Um, yeah, I, I think that might be um, an interesting way to take it. Um, yeah, and just generally, I, I feel like this was my uh, first book just trying to get it out there for the uh, Author's Dozen project. And um, I I come back to this a few months later and just through like life developments and stuff, I, I sort of, I don't know. I know that I wrote Turner as like not a completely self-actualized character. Like he's very much a child and so is Faye. Like, I mean, they, they are technically, you know, teenagers or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's a, there has to be a way to write those teenagers in a way that isn't as frustrating as it seems to me right now. Like I, I really, really like them as characters, but I also think like there are parts of them that sort of like grade on me. And I think it's okay for characters to not be like completely likable all the time, but there is a sense in which just like there, these characters are likable to themselves, right? They are comfortable with who they are to a certain extent. Uh, otherwise they would change who they are. And um, I think there's a way to, write these imperfect characters where they like struggle with those flaws and like are at least sort of aware of them. Um, but that it doesn't like just take over their entire psyche. So yeah, I don't know stuff to work on. One thing I really do, um, enjoy about how this story came together is just the idea of, um, the idea of hope and how, you know, I don't know. A lot of a lot of uh a lot of hope talk nowadays is people thinking it's like wishful thinking or whatever. But it's really not. It's it's frankly like extremely practical because there is present pain. Um but hope is the, you know, hope is the hope that, you know, there's something beyond it. And I really like the idea of like all these conspiracies and like you know, villains and stuff running around and they've got no hope for the future. So they've got to make it, they've got to enact it or whatever. And like, I know that that's like a, a power trip that a lot of human beings are on right now here in 2020, but I, I don't see that as like an unmitigated good. I really think that most people's solution to things is what ends up causing a lot of trouble in the world. 
And, um, yeah, I think, uh, I, I don't know, especially with, as you see in the book, like the power of humans to enact really huge world sweeping change that like does terrible things to people. And I think that hope allows you to try to make things better, but at the same time, recognize that like you are not personally responsible for changing every last thing that bothers you. Like the inability to let stuff go is not just like defeatist. It's actually very like practical. So I don't know. I'm not exactly sure how to like improve that theme in this book. Um, and I'm, I, I just, I, I like the idea that like, I don't know, even the good characters who have good intentions end up like really messing people up. Like Turner's been lied to all his life by like well-intentioned people, but they are so human that they can't recognize that like their lies are these totally unnecessary evils. And I think that, yeah, if you go away from this book with anything, man, let me tell you, like, I have hope that there's something that's bigger and better than me out there that's doing work that I can't even imagine. Um, and uh, that allows me to do the work I need to do right now, but not to just, like, totally despair over everything that I can't. Um, so, yeah. I just, I just think that's like a very happy way to live. And I, I hope that for you. I hope that you have hope, my bud. And uh, thanks for listening to my little ramble here at the end. Just trying to sort of digest what I wrote. And uh, if, if you're still here, I don't know why, but thank you. And uh, good for you. And also, way to get through a book and also share it with your friends give it to them <laughs>